Today's guest created the role of Trina in William Finn's Marvin musicals, appearing in the original productions of both In Trousers and March of the Falsettos. Her many stage appearances include the Broadway productions of The Secret Garden and Romance Romance, and she's currently channeling both her inner nun and her inner Nazi in Charles Bush's <laughs> The Divine Sister off-Broadway. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm delighted to meet Allison Frazier. And it's very nice to meet you, Howard. So, let me ask, what is the response when you are presented with a script in which you play a nun who ultimately ends up in some bondage gear? <laughs> and you say, why did they think of me? Well, I have a, a long history with Charles Bush, and I've actually played that a, a similar part in another Charles Bush piece called The Green Heart. I, I, and I don't know if you saw that or not, but that was the piece that he wrote with my late husband, Rusty McGee, that was done at Manhattan Theater Club. And in it, I was a uh, – uh, we don't say Nazi. We say t- Teutonic. Okay. A, a Teutonic of villainess. <laughs> uh, Which I, is code named for – And she's this very, very glamorous, very evil woman uh, – who is a dastardly dame. And uh, I think that Charles just thinks my German accent is funny. <laughs> so so when he was putting this show together, I, I, I think that he thought of me and uh, resurrected Uta's oeuvre. <laughs> <laughs> so were you part of The Divine Sister when it was down at Theatre for the New City? Yes, I was. I, I have been a blessed part of this blessed event. No, I've been a part of this blessed event uh, since the very beginning, since the um, the table reads in Charles's unbelievably beautiful and glamorous apartment. Well, you say unbelievably beautiful and glamorous. My understanding is um, working at Theater for the New City, it was, uh, let's say, a down and dirty production. Well, I said Charles's apartment was unbelievably right. beautiful and glamorous. <laughs> Theater for a New City is... Uh, Bohemian, to be kind. I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, atmospheric theater. Of course, it's it, it really does evoke those crazy days of the seventies and eighties, where you could just kind of put a show on in a basement someplace, and lo and behold, you you have a hit on your hands. Uh, uh, I remember the old days at the West Bank Cafe down at the what is now the Laurie Beachman Theater. I think at the time it was called the. Um, what was it called? The Downstairs Theater Bar, mm-hmm. where like Lou Black and Rusty, my husband Rusty uh, did, and Rand Forster was the um, other person uh, responsible for the uh, shows that were being put on down there. I, I really do believe that they put on almost a thousand um, plays over the course of 12 years down there. Hmm. I mean, it was pretty amazing. You know, it was back before you needed millions of dollars to put on even the smallest show. Well, again, that was sort of, as you say, the aesthetic of putting on Divine Sister down at Theatre for the New City. It really was put together inexpensively. Very inexpensively. Um, no marketing, I think, except word of mouth. And I believe internet, a lot so. of it was Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of it was. And we were sold out for the whole run. No publicity. I, I, I think that the costumes were, you know, really on a dime. And, and special kudos to Dan Goggin because he – Donated all the nuns have it. Yes, well, he would he would have really, a really warehouse full of them. Exactly. One imagines, yeah. but it's as a performer when you're asked to go, even by a friend and major artist like Charles, when you're asked to go to a small venue to work on a shoestring for a short period of time, there was no guarantee the show was going to go on. What does it take to commit to that sort of thing? Well, it, what it takes, besides you know, great faith in in Charles and great love for Charles, is you know an unbelievable script. I mean, when we, when we were presented with this script, it was gold from from word go. Carl Andres called me up. He, he's the wonderful director and longtime collaborator of Charles, and um, uh, he handed me this script. And I'd be an idiot not to take it. I'd be an idiot not to pay to do it. Oh, please don't tell my producer that, <laughs> Daryl. I was only kidding. Um, uh, one of my great joys in this business has always been to originate parts. And when you're given the opportunity to originate a great, great comic villainess like uh, Sister Wilberger, you really would be foolish not to avail yourself of that opportunity. Um, that being said, it was not uh, uh, 
me thinking, oh, you know, we're going to move to Broadway. It was being involved with a great group of people under the aegis of the wonderful Charles Bush and, and uh, by extension, Carl, the, the wonderful Carl Andrus. And uh, just doing theater for the love of doing uh, a, a great show, not for um, the reviews, not for, oh, yes, we're going to definitely move. You know, there was no pressure. When we did it down at, again, that wacky bohemian space, Theater for a New City, uh, it was for love. It really was. And the joy on the stage and off stage was palpable. And I do think that that transferred into the onstage production. I mean, we were just, we were just all having such a darn good time. And then when uh, Daryl Roth, our wonderful producer, came to see the very last show um, and agreed to take us on to the next step, uh, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that we were just all so happy. How often in theater is every person involved with the show happy? Hmm. I mean, there's just not a bad apple in the bunch. There really isn't. You may or in the barrel. I guess it's bananas <laughs> in a bunch, right? You can mix your metaphors. Okay. It's okay. No grammar police here. <laughs> you said you love the opportunity to create a role. Yeah, that's kind of what you, I like doing. And you also said that the script was gold from the beginning. Yeah. Sometimes – Actors like to create roles because they can put their own stamp on them or indeed the role might be crafted to their particular talents. Was this a script that changed through rehearsal? You know, I have to say this script did not change very much at all. I mean, Charles is such a specific writer and his craftsmanship is so superb. I mean, I think he knows that I can do specific things, uh, particularly with uh, accents. I, I've always been handy with accents. So, you know, he'd, he'd uh, put the turn of phrase in that I could twist. And, you know, he knows that uh, I can project, uh, you know, a sort of malevolent quality when called upon to do so because I had done it for him in um, The Green Heart. And oddly enough, I, I did another German villain in um, – Louis Black and uh, Rusty McGee's uh, The Czar of Rock and Roll, this unbelievable uh, musical uh, that's loosely based on the story of um, the American pop singer Dean Reed, who uh, became an expatriate and was ultimately the biggest pop star Russia had ever seen. <laughs> yeah, it's a great story. And that was just done at Joe's Pub a couple of years ago in a revised version. So, hmm. um, yeah. We were talking about yes. uh, the script being yeah, and gold, how much did it change? And, it changed and very, very little. You know, it's nips and tucks here and there. Um, I think initially the uh, charwoman that I played was uh, – am I wrong? I think the first reading we did, she was Irish and then they switched her to Scottish. Hmm. It doesn't matter because the reviewers all say she's Irish. <laughs> I guess we have to look at that next time. Um, well, but very the, little change is what I'm saying. One of the reasons I wanted to ask is I think there are people, especially with new comedies, uh -huh. who have this vision uh -huh. of everybody getting into a room uh -huh. and starting to kid around and make up stuff and that that's how it comes together. And what you're saying is no. Oh, this Lord, was, no. Not, not the, with As you say, Charles. it's, pr I mean, it's precise. Uh, oh, Charles's scripts are – they're like uh, Noel Coward's scripts. They're, they're absolutely precise. His, his writing is so – rhythmic, that if you do add a word, it messes up the rhythm. Hmm. It does. No, no. I mean, he's one of he's one of our great, great playwrights, and there's not an extra syllable in his um, written script. There really isn't. Hmm. And I'm very, very careful to never add anything, not even an um or an ah, because his rhythms are so precise. So with that, in a show that has as many laughs as yours does and assuming that some nights different audiences laugh at different things, oh gosh, how, yes. much, how much do you have to adjust from night to night based on, on what people are getting or not getting? Well, again, uh, people respond to different things on different nights. I mean, sometimes people look at me like I'm a bug and sometimes I think I'm hilarious. Um, a lot of times we'll have, you know, huge Julian Charles fans. So anything they do is, is going to get a huge reaction. Sometimes it's people that have, you know, read the Times Review and maybe haven't seen Charles and Julie. So it's, it's less of a, 
you know, a typical Charles and Julie reaction and, and, you know, sort of more evenly distributed. This play, it's, it's like riding a wave. I mean, you get on that surfboard and you hope for that wave to support you underneath. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But the, the story is always so incredibly strong. Um, and I, I don't like to go for the laughs. What I like to do is tell the story. And if laughs come along the way, that's great. But I can't, I can't be concerned if somebody doesn't find my German accent hilarious. I can't. I have to tell a story. I'm telling a really important story. Hmm. And I've been kidding around about how I'm the villainess. What, the way I approach it is, is that I'm not really the villainess. I'm the heroine of my own story. I'm the heroine of the Sister Walburga play, <laughs> you know, because she really believes in what she's doing. No villain thinks what they're doing is wrong. They, they have a passion um, for what they think is right. Hmm. Yeah. Have you had anybody get up in a huff because they're offended and, and walk out? Or do people seem to know what they're coming in for? No, the only thing that came close to it was um, when um, Archbishop Dolan said something in the, the, the paper about uh, or was it on, on, on line or on, I, I on television? I don't know where the comment whatever. was made. I yeah. mean, but the audience this is. sort of misguided yeah. comment about how we were being irreverent or something. It's like, no, 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 you got it all wrong. As a matter of fact, this play actually says some lovely things about faith. And I think it's quite respectful, really. Uh, but no, we've never had, as far as I can tell, and it's a pretty small theater. Oh, yeah, you know. I've never seen a walkout. Great. Uh, except for people like maybe at the tail end of a curtain call who, who <laughs> want to get the subway or want to beat the rush. But no, I think this show is so good-hearted that uh, people are just basically having a ball. And it seems like you're all having a ball up there. Oh, we're having a great time. Well, it's it's so much fun. And and the group is just such a lovely group. I mean, I've, my darling Amy Rutberg and Jennifer Van Dyke and, and, and Jonathan Walker, the wonderful married couple that uh, is in the show with us. And, of course, Julie Halston. I share a dressing room with Julie Halston, Charles Bush, and David Drake, who is Charles's standby. And Marcy McGuigan, I should also mention, is uh, another great standby that we have who went on for Julie a couple of days ago. And, uh, you know... I share a dressing room with the funniest people on the planet. I was going to say it's hilarious. Can we, can we get tickets for that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, they want to put up, they want to do podcasts, not podcasts, video casts from the dressing room because that's that's a show unto itself. <laughs> I mean, I'm like the straight man there. I'm like, oh my god, what are these two talking about today? Three. Yeah, it's fun. Well, let's talk about how you got to divinity okay. from Natick, Mass. Natick, Massachusetts. That's where I grew up, and right outside of Boston. started doing shows. I know you did high school shows. I did. I got involved with the National Forensic League very early on in high school, uh, the Competitive Speech Club. Okay. And but not, I, the national, not the International Thespian Society. No, no. Interestingly. But okay. um, it's called the NFL. And, or maybe, <laughs> maybe it isn't anymore, but when I was there, it was the National Forensic mm -hmm. League. And the fellow, Jerry Dyer, who was the um, coach for the Competitive Speech Club, um, was also um, a, a director. And I started getting involved in shows through him. And, and we also had this fascinating man named Ed Jameson who, as far as I can remember, he invented an, a telephone answering machine long before they were commercially available. And also we had, uh, oddly enough, in Natick, Massachusetts, we had a, a planetarium. And, oh, I should mention here that that's where I met Billy Finn. Um, he was like four years older than I was. But um, he came back and he saw some shows that I was in, and that's how he. I suddenly had this vision of the voice. creepy older guy coming back to hang around the high school. But uh, <laughs> uh, oh, oh, you're so sweet! Oh, Howard, I like that. Yes, yes, he's he's 20 years older than I am. Yes, <laughs> and next year it'll be 22. Um, no, uh, the, so we were lucky enough. Ed Jameson uh, put up this fantastic. Uh, surround sound system, and again, long before surround sound systems became popular, and an incredible lighting system. So we would do shows in the planetarium, and these shows were, hey, I will swear, kick ass. I mean, we did a Dracula that, and we had this 
incredible looking young man named Ross Clay, who I think was like 6'5 and real thin and really, really handsome. I think he's a Hollywood stuntman now. And what you could do is uh, the, the dome of the planetarium is mesh. So you could light somebody uh, on a platform beyond the mesh of the planetarium and it would look like they were floating in the air. Huh. And then um, uh, Mr. D- – and you know, you could light him green. So, you know, Dracula would be 20 feet floating above the heads of the audience. Wow. And then at one point, uh, Mr. Dyer, who really was a, a terrific uh, director – and he, he would really choose odd stuff for kids to do. Like, I believe I did Marat Saad when I was 15 years old. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, it was a great production, but it's an odd choice. But anyway, the Dracula, he came up with the idea because a planetarium can get dead dark, like absolutely no light. I'm sure there are fire laws being um, uh, uh, totally flouted there. But um, – I think the planetarium doesn't exist anymore, so we're safe. But he had this idea of. Yeah, are you worried that the Natick Fire Department is listening to us right now? Well, let's and going, also, let's said, check out that planetarium. You said you had ninety thousand <laughs> subscribers. Who knows? Um, so uh, uh, Mr. Dyer had the idea of you know getting the planetarium the planetarium into you know dead darkness, black darkness, and then kids. Um, students would have these long sticks with strings and wet leather <laughs> attached to the ends of the strings. So the wet leather would be dragged over the students' heads and mm-hmm. hands. And you have these kids like screaming. It was really fun. That's a great entertainment. Time. And we did Galileo there. We did the Trojan Women and we did the Apple Tree. It was so much fun mm-hmm. to do shows in the planetarium. So you decided theater was for you then? You know, I really, really fell into it. I um, I got I, I went to Carnegie Mellon, and I didn't like it. And then I went to the Boston Conservatory of Music, and I didn't like that either. But when I was at the Boston Conservatory of Music, I auditioned for a show that Arthur Copet was doing that Raul Julia was in and Barry Primus, and I got it. And it was something. It was Louisiana uh, Territory Louisiana, or Lewis and Clark Lewis Lost and, Clark, and Found. Clark Lost and Found, and it was uh, a wonderful. It was a, to be a, like a site-specific show, and we were going to travel the country. And it just it kind of fell apart, but um, it really gave me the um, courage to move to New York and try my my hand at uh, uh, you know getting my uh, getting into the New York theater. So I quit school. And oddly enough, uh, for the past four years, I have been attending Fordham University, and I just got my BA last year. Summa cum laude, English literature, Fordham University, 2010 commencement speaker. Thank you very much. So let me. I just graduated. I, and congratulations, yeah. and I'd read that. And I that. teach at Fordham now too. I well, teach a, that, a that's it. course. Were you teaching? Did you get start teaching right after you got your degree? Actually, I, I taught. Like a semester before, like they knew I was getting my degree in May and I started my class in February. So did you get the degree in order to be able to teach or did you get the degree for another reason? No, my degree really has uh, nothing to do with actually what I teach. It's not a theater degree. It's an English literature degree. You know, there are a lot of reasons I did it. But I think the main reason is that I think, you know, my husband, Rusty McGee, died about, well, gosh, it'll be eight years ago in February and I have a son, and my son is in college. He's out at Chapman University um, uh, doing some film studies. And I, I, Rusty had been a, a Brown University graduate, and then he went on to Yale, and he got a, um, an honorary degree from uh, Yale. And I really felt like after Rusty's death, I wanted to be a good example to my son and just show him how very, very important it was for me that he graduate from college. And I think that he's really proud of me for graduating. Hmm. Yeah, he really likes it. And I think I'm continuing on for my master's. I, I got accepted into the master's program, and I believe I'm, if I can scrounge the cash together, I will, I will start up again in January. Wow. Yeah. So let's come back to the theater. So you said after the experience on the Copet play, which sort of fell apart – yeah. Somewhere on the road. Yeah. Um, you came to New York. Um, the first break was really, it would seem, in Trousers, which wasn't a huge success first time up. 
but it got mm. some recognition for it Bill. It did, but I have to say that show really was a star maker for Bill. It didn't. I mean, Michael Rupert had his rep already. It because I remember that Times uh, review very vividly, and uh, it was really this Bill Finn is a you know he's he's the new voice in American musical theater, and uh, I I had started working with Bill. Gosh, well, as soon as I. Well, actually, I started working with him when I was in high school. Right. Uh, we sang pop songs together uh, because he he always wanted to be like Randy Newman and have a big pop hit. I remember him making me listen to uh, – what was that album? Sail Away? Was that? Sure. Sail Away. And uh, he actually sounded a lot like uh, – um, Randy Newman. I've when heard he Bill sang. sing. I guess his voice has changed. <laughs> I love Billy's voice. As a matter of fact, he sang a duet with me on my second uh, CD called "Men in My Life." Uh, the song was called "Passion of Rhoda," and hmm. I, I love singing with Billy. I mean, uh, we, I started doing harmonies for him when I was in high school, and I contributed a lot of the harmonies for "In Trousers" and "March of the Falsettos." I did a lot of the um, dissonance and. Um, uh, the, the descants uh, for him. And uh, I started working with him and Mary Tessa and a woman named Kay Pesek. And we would sing uh, a lot of songs, you know, I'd say like 20 songs up in his apartment on the Upper West Side, I guess near you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember it was summer, it was hot, and none of us had any money and no air conditioning. And and I wanted to go to Maine for the summer because my parents had a had a, an apartment, and we had been working on this song cycle. And we came up, I think, collectively with the idea of presenting them uh, in Billy's apartment, and that's how In Trousers came to be. I, I think um, we invited Clarence Horizons and Ira Weitzman showed up. We borrowed, you know, people have heard this story before, but we borrowed chairs from. The nearby synagogue and and pooled our pennies so that we could buy some cheap white wine and grapes and Mary and I scrubbed that place from tile to to ceiling and uh, um, that's how In Trousers was born. Yet it was really March of the Falsettos that was the big burst for for Bill for the show. You know, for and beginning. Oh, definitely. The idea oh, you know what? I just continuity. got those reviews mixed up. Oh my god, mm-hmm. I got those mixed up. You're absolutely right. In trousers was sort of a. It was not. It, it, a people great in the review. business started to see what was going on. Yeah, I mean, and, In and trousers is really it. one of my favorite yeah. shows of all time. I think it's genius. Um, the Times was not that kind to In trousers. They fell over themselves. I mean, Frank Rich fell over himself for March of the Falsettos. That's the one that I was talking about. Oh, mm-hmm. God. It's okay. <laughs> okay. You, you, I mixed up In Trousers and March of the Falsettos. Michael Rupert, of course, was not in In Trousers. It was Chip Zion playing right. Billy Mark. Finn's yeah. part. Um, no, it was March of the Falsettos that got such a glowing review for, for Billy and, and well-deserved. And it was a brilliant piece of theater, um, helped in, in large part by uh, James Lapine's direction. Hmm. You said again. I'm going to keep coming back to you. Liked creating roles. I so, do. So you, I've been so got lucky to create that. Trina in two productions. Yeah. That one has a clearer through line, as you say. Right. In trousers is more of a song cycle, thematic, and about the women in Marvin's life. Right. Whereas, it's much more abstract. Whereas there's a clearer plot yeah. to March. In your trousers, she didn't even have a name. She was just the wife. Hmm. Yeah. So when March of the Falsettos came along, was what you had done in In Trousers, did it inform the role you played or did you really create it anew because of the greater plot clarity? Well, you know, first of all, I thanked my lucky stars that I wasn't, you know, replaced immediately because James uh, had convinced Bill to put a 13-year-old boy in it. And I think at the time I was, I don't know, 25 or something like that. So I'm like, how am I going to play the mother of a a 13-year-old? Boom, there goes that job. But James was kind enough to keep me. And, uh, uh, um, you you know, was uh, for me, I don't know if Billy would agree with this, but so much – me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it was like that. Uh, I was, um, I didn't even think about acting. I was just playing Allison. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So you weren't creating a role. You were just. I was just being. 
Hmm. I, I think that I just was. I was, Trina. Hmm. So the next big thing that I see that came along was you went into Drood as a replacement. Oh, no. I think that there was something really, really important uh, before that and what I really regard as the genesis of my career, even though I'm thrilled hmm. to have originated um, in Trousers and March of the Falsettos, I don't th- really think I came into my own until Beehive. Ah, okay. Uh, then because I it yeah. uh, when I did stuff for Billy, uh, for some reason, Billy Billy didn't think I could get applause or laughs. So Trina tended to be a little bit on the the the, um, the dour side, and her her songs. Uh, tended to run into the next song, so you didn't have to worry about her getting golf applause at the end of it. Hmm. This all ended, of course, uh, when he added I'm Breaking Down after I was not involved with the piece anymore. <laughs> but he did let me uh, record it for, I think it's on that CD I gave you today. Uh, hmm. I'm Breaking Down? Yeah, I think it is. Um, he let me record it, which is really sweet. And I had actually worked on it early on, but it, it never went into uh, one of the falsettos uh, shows when I was still involved with it, which I really regret. I did finally get to sing it, though, at the um, Playwrights Horizons concert version huh. uh, in O2 when they opened the new space. Hmm. But um, I did not think of myself as um, having showstopper qualities or getting laughs. I really didn't. Hmm. You know, Mary was always the one that got the big applause and, you know, the, the guffaws. And then when I got cast in Beehive by Larry Gallagher, now that, interestingly enough, was a show that we were very instrumental in, uh, you know, writing the skits. I mean, Patty Darcy and I totally wrote that uh, Connie Francis skit that ended with Where the Boys Are. We absolutely did because uh, the skit that was provided, I just I, I couldn't do anything with it. If I don't find it funny, I'm going to be really bad. Hmm. <laughs> you know, I really am. I'm just not going to be good. I'm not good at putting over what I deem to be inferior material. Hmm. I'm really good at putting over good material. But um, like Charles's, you know, it's easy to do Charles's material well because it's so beautifully crafted. But when you're handed this sort of middling to low-brow sket and expected to, you know, make funny faces and make the audience laugh, I'm really bad at that. Uh, but then Patty Darcy and I did some improv and uh, came up with a really, really funny skit uh, yeah. with Connie Francis and, and Leslie Gore. So uh, – and the great Patty Darcy, you know, one of the greatest rock and roll voices of our time who sadly passed away two and a half years ago. Yeah. So Beehive was was when you really felt you came into your Yeah, because I got huge laughs. I got great reviews. I, I always get big applause after where the boys are. And I'm like, oh, wait a second. I am good at that. I can do that. Hmm. And it was really a question of, I think, I you know, I had always been so close to Billy. It was really time for me not to be so close to him anymore. Hmm. And so there was a long time that we – I think there were a couple of years that we didn't even speak. Uh, and we're friends now. It's fine now. But um, I was so close to him. I did have to break off hmm. from him for a while. Hmm. I really did. Leave Natick behind and truly Yeah, and really York. go off to myself. No, oh, no, because we were uh, – Billy and I were both in Natick when we – we're working on obviously in trousers. I'm in New York when we were working on in trousers, but uh, I had to. I meant it metaphorically. Oh, oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so. Well, they both begin with N and end with K. <laughs> I'm surprised Newark isn't in there someplace. There's still but you time. know, you asked about improving, and you know what? There was a lot of improv in in trousers because I remember Chip and I um, improving a little scene between the husband. And wife, and one of the lines was "Pass the sugar, please," hmm. and that became, of course, that very beautiful and plaintive song between the couple that is so sad with each other. Since we're talking about creating roles, I'm going to skip now past Drude, which I dropped in quickly. Drude is fabulous, though. Um, I loved Drude, and Rupert Holmes is a genius. <laughs> Absolutely, he is, he but is I want to go unsung, to, to romance, romance. <gasps> Such a good experience. I mean, it was just, it was breathtaking. Did you see it? I did not see it. Oh my so God, tell me so why, why it was breathtaking. Well, again, 
I'm so drawn to beautifully crafted pieces. And Barry Herman is just about as smart as they get. I mean, he's right up there with Charles. I mean, they, these are smart people. And he knows exactly what he wants. Again, his, his um, uh, libretto and his lyrics are so smart. Um, he researches meticulously. His direction is great. He chooses a, the fantastic, you know, Keith Herman, who's such a great musician, to be his partner on that on that piece. And um, the two uh, short stories that he chose to musicalize were just such delicate, beautiful pieces of of humanity. I mean, one was the little comedy by the great Arthur Schnitzler. Uh, and the other was, oh God, I'm not going to be able to remember the, the French uh, author, but it was Le Pain de Menage. And um, I, I think that's roughly translated as Breaking Bread. And it, it was what became Summer Share, which was the story of a, a troubled, uh, a, a, well, I like to think a troubled woman, but I suppose it's about a troubled woman and a troubled man. It's about best friends that um, uh, discover their, uh, uh, or uncover their attraction for each other. And decide on whether or not um, a night of infidelity is is worth the pain that they will inflict on their families. Hmm. It was a very small musical. Tiny. It was four people. Which which at the time was much remarked upon. You well, didn't see tiny musicals. Because that, that was the year of the behemoth. That was uh, the year Phantom of the Opera came over. And I believe – I could be a little bit wrong with my numbers – I believe, though, that their chandelier was the entire budget of our show. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I think with with – add a few months running costs and I believe that was it Hmm. because we came in under a million dollars for that show. And uh, the beauty part of Romance Romance was, you know, we started at the Actors Outlet, which was this little place down on 28th Street. And again, it was kind of like Theater for a New City, very funky. But we had this gem, gem of a show that I passionately believed in, that we all passionately believed in. And again, a fairy godmother by the name of Dasha Epstein came in and said, this is a jewel that must be you know, put in you know, a nice setting. Hmm. And she, uh, with other producers too, like I think Jay Bullmash was our other producer, producer on that. Uh, and they put us into the Helen Hayes, which is indeed a gem of a theater. And, uh, you know, my life changed. I got a Tony nomination. We had Thomas C. Shepard ascending, you know, cars to, to bring, you know, me and Scott and, and uh, 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 the other two actors, uh, Bob Hoshauer and Debbie Graham, out to Queens to do five days on a cast album. When was the last time I've you ever heard of. of a cast album taking five days? To With four record? actors. I mean, it was that the luxury was unbelievable. And if you listen to that album today, well, I don't. I'm not even sure you can. It could be out of print. But that is such a beautifully produced album. And. Uh, you know, I, we did Gypsy. Uh, you know, I did the Gypsy revival sure. with uh, Arthur Lawrence and, and Patti LuPone. Um, I, I think that whole thing was done in two days. Hmm. Secret Garden, two days. Huge shows. I believe, It was either four or five days for Romance Romance. But, oh, my God, my life changed. Hmm. It just totally changed. And, again, the self-confidence that really started building for me with Beehive and then getting – the Broadway uh, replacement job um, in Edwin Drood, working with an idol like, oh, my God, uh, George Rose, to be working with George Rose and to become friendly with him, mm. uh, to work with Howard McGillen was just uh, – to work under Joe Papp mm. and, and Wilfred Leach. It was a dream come true, dream come true. And, and speaking of this um, – Dreams come true. I, I also have to mention that one of my early, early supporters was the great Tom Ion. And I think that he has got to be mentioned here as, as one of the people that really gave me um, a, a huge boost of self-confidence because I had always admired his, his plays. And then I think he, his was the first professional play that I did in Manhattan with Henry Krieger. And, uh, I, I miss him terribly. I, I, I miss Tom Iron terribly. Well, since you've you've mentioned it, 
let's jump right on to Secret Garden. I mean, as we're talking about confidence building, Tony nomination, uh-huh. you know, with Romance, Romance, and then a couple of years later, again, creating a role in a Broadway I like creating musical. roles. Well, you said I like that. it. And you know, so- I'm not very good at going in and auditioning for roles that have already been created. I don't, I'm not very good at fitting into somebody else's puzzle. I'm really not. Well, let's come back to that in a minute. Let's talk about the creation of Secret Garden and well, and and finding that role. Well, Secret Garden, uh, I have to credit David Loud because I believe uh, this is a fantastic music director that was musically directing the version that was being done in Virginia that I think ultimately Vicki Clark did the part of Martha down there. And then they decided to um, go in a different direction when they came to New York. But when they were auditioning for that one down there, I was pregnant with uh, – who is now my son, Nat, who's 20. And uh, uh, David said, you really have to sing for this. I said, David, look at me. You know, I, I had run into him at one of those rehearsal spaces that a lot of things are rehearsing at once. And I do a lot of voiceovers and audiobooks. And I think I was up at that same studio uh, you know, g- trying out for a voiceover, which obviously doesn't matter if you're, you're pregnant for a voiceover. Um, but he said, it doesn't matter. I need to have Lucy Simon hear you sing. And of course, Lucy has a great, um, uh, folk sound to her. And my, my voice, I would not call it a traditional show voice. I think, I think there's a lot of folk, a lot of country, a lot of pop in my voice. Um, I, I'm not your typical musical theater singer. I, I'm just not. I'm very idiosyncratic. And uh, I don't really sound like a lot of musical comedy singers. And a lot of people don't like that, and a lot of people do like it. And it's just a question of whether I'm to their taste. I just happen to be to Lucy Simon's taste. And I didn't have any music, uh, but I thought, well, Lucy Simon, I bet she'd like Big Rock Candy Mountain, hmm. which is one of my favorite songs. And so I, I think that I sang Big Rock Candy Mountain a cappella for her. And I, I think Susan Shulman was there too, and I think Heidi um, Heidi was there, uh, the producer. And maybe Marsha Norman was there too. But I do believe that the person who really responded to me was – Lucy, because she knew I could sing her material. Hmm. And I think it's just so happened that, um, you know, uh, on a summer's day in the month of May, a burly little bum came a hiking. Is not that dissimilar from, if I had a fine white horse, I'd take you for a ride today. It's the same kind of bouncy folk melody. Hmm. And uh, it's not typical, you know, showbiz pizzazz. It's like, you know, John Cameron Mitchell is not your typical uh, uh, juvenile sound. And he played my brother. Right. You know, he's much more pop-oriented, hmm. rock-oriented, folk-oriented. Yeah. Interesting. That's Interesting. what I think anyway. So you auditioned pregnant, had I your did. son, had went into son. the show because we would have all noticed. Well, what happened was when it came back around again, I think they had me audition again. And I am – Good with accents, mm-hmm. and I, I, I. Uh, it's a Yorkshire accent, which is a very, very difficult accent, and uh, I, I think I did a good job, and uh, uh, I had help along the way. Uh, Barbara Rosenblatt helped, and John Cameron Mitchell. But I think that they saw enough of it in the audition that they realized, okay, um, she's going to be able to handle this because it's it's a tricky accent, and. Uh, and I also had a feel for it. I had just had a baby. It's funny because now, because I'm in Divine Sister, people think, oh, she's a villain. Uh, oh, she did the villain in, in The Green Heart. And oh, she was so hard in, in uh, Gypsy. And of course, Martha is like, she defines warmth. And I don't know if it's, you know, what's going on in your life at that time. But I had just had a baby and I was just oozing maternal you know, love all over the place. And I think that the experience of having a baby really informed uh, the lovely, lovely character that is Martha. Hmm. Now, I'm going to jump ahead. I'm going to skip my usual fanatical devotion to chronology. Okay. Because you said that you don't like going into parts that other people have have formed. So 
I'm curious about doing Gypsy. Now, it was a new production. You weren't replacing someone in that production. But clearly, you were playing a role that had been played many times by many different people all over the place. Yeah, I had a a lot of trouble with it at first. Really? I really did. Because, you know, Arthur and I are friends. Um, We uh, share some commonalities. Uh, Both of our um, you know, our partners um, passed away. We we shared grief together. Uh, they, uh, Rusty and Tom uh, had the same doctor. You know, we had a lot in hmm. common. And, of course, I had always, you know, just thought he was a genius. And uh, he came to see me at the George Street Playhouse, which has really become my theatrical home. And I want to talk about that. I mean, David that. Saint, I love him. I love what he does out there. And I've done five shows out there in six years. I just... I think so highly of them, and David is really the person that brought me back from my grief by offering me um, the great part of Chloe and Lips Together, Teeth Apart soon after my husband died. I didn't think I could ever learn my lines again, hmm. and uh, because it, my head was just, you know, so bursting with, oh my God, look what's happened to me. I just lived through two and a half years of somebody dying of cancer, you know, somebody who I loved so much. And now I'm bringing up this child alone. And I, I felt very overwhelmed. And, and David brought me in. And I very much credit him with bringing me literally back from the dead. And, um, and of course, that was such a great production. Oh, my God, that was good. Michael Morris directed it. And it was just, I think Terrence McNally really liked it. And that led to me being cast in dedication later on um, with uh, Nathan Lane and Marion Seldes. But... Um, Arthur came to see another show that I had done out there called Gunmetal Blues, which is one of my favorite shows ever. And uh, I've done that a couple of times. Uh, I got a Barrymore Award for it down in Philly, and then uh, I brought it to George Street, and they said, yeah, let's do it. And we did it, and it was Patrick Quinn's last musical, and it was a real honor to be on a stage with him in his last musical. He was magnificent. But Arthur came to see the show, and he really liked it, and he liked me in it. And we went out to dinner, and he said... You know, we're we're going to be doing this thing at City Center. You know, we're going to be doing Gypsy with Patty LuPone. I want you to be Tessie Tura. And I, I, you know, when somebody says something, I'm like, uh, I, when the contract comes, I'll believe it. Because so many times these things don't happen. You know, little did I know this is Arthur Lawrence you're dealing with. Of course it's going to happen because he makes things happen. And um, so I said, of course, Arthur, I'll do anything for you. I'm honored. And I didn't even think about it because – Tessie really isn't a part that I would ever think of my, myself as doing. Hmm. I, I just – it's not a part I've ever been I, – I, I ever thought, oh, yeah, that's a great part for me. <laughs> I, you know, I was never that drawn to the, the number, even though it's a great number. For me, I didn't I, – I, yeah, because, I, again, I'm not – show business pizzazzy and that that song of course is you know you got to have a gimmick is like the ultimate in show business pizzazz and but again i said okay well this will be interesting you know it's just three weeks at city center i get to work with caddy lapone who i love boyd gaines laura Benanti. yeah okay fine i'm in and i wanted to bring something new to it i thought oh it's tessie tora the texas twirler so why can't tessie have a texan accent well you know i'm sure somebody's done it across the country but uh I had never seen it. And I thought, I'm thinking, well, maybe this is an interesting way to go. And uh, it lasted three days. And up until that fourth day, I thought, hey, I'm really bringing something new to it. Oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to make my mark on this. And the fourth day, the axe fell, and he said, I don't like it. Uh, Arthur said, I don't like it. You have to go back. And then it was clear that he really wanted me much more in the mold of traditional Tessie Torres. And I guess I wasn't very good at it. I'm I'm not good at fitting into somebody else's, hmm. you know, puzzle hole. I'm 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 an oddly shaped puzzle piece, and even though, uh, you know, it's it's a brilliantly written part. I mean, it, you'd have to be an idiot not to get laughs on those lines. But it was very difficult for me, and I found that the more frustrated I got, the angrier I got, the more he liked it. So, by the time we opened, I was playing Tessitura so incredibly tough and angry, and he loved it, you know? And he's like, more, more, give it to him, give it to him, when I was, you know, doing the, the big scene with Bill Raymond, and 
And, you know, yeah, it, it, and the showdown with Patty was just, we're in the Vatican. You know, it was just the tougher I got, the more he liked it. Hmm. And so by the end, I really feel like I did bring something unusual to Tessie, which is, no, she's not um, uh, this delicate flower that is, is you know, obviously, a, you know, a withered flower, but um, – She's a really beat up woman hmm. and she's at the end of her career. She has nowhere to go. It's the middle of the depression. Where the hell is this woman going to go in within the next five years? I mean, I think I was appreciably older than most people who had played Tessitura. What happened to her? Well, in real life, what happened to Tessitura is she started going on the road as um, an assistant to um, Gypsy. Hmm. Uh, Gypsy in the book uh, that Gypsy wrote said Tessie Tora was closer to her than her own sister. Hmm. And uh, she became, you know, like her, um, you know, like her Thelma Ritter. <laughs> you know, she was the, the, the her assistant. assistant yeah, the personal the, assistant the before personal the, assistants yeah. existed. And her seamstress and uh, her, her wardrobe lady, basically. Hmm. And, uh, you know, and when you think about it, she really that character Tessie really did give so much to Gypsy. She gave her her name. She gave her her first dress. Uh, the shoes that Gypsy wore in the first strip were Tessie's shoes. The gloves that Tessie uh, that uh, Gypsy wore in the first strip were Tessie's gloves. So Tessie gave Gypsy Rose Lee her persona of lady. I mean, mm. she really did put that mantle. On. Oh, I'm getting choked off because I really do love Ch- Tessie. I really love her. And I'm really grateful that Arthur let me totally explore the very, very dark and sad side of Tessie. And the great thing that happened with You Gotta Have a Gimmick was it, it just wasn't working. It just wasn't working at all because it was so presentational. And then, um, you know, we had this disastrous run through, and when Arthur doesn't like something, I mean, he's just my favorite note that he ever gave me was, "Everything you do is wrong." <laughs> it's like, oh my god, wow! It's very constructive. Wow, <laughs> but actually, it was, you know, because then you go, okay, well, let's let's tear it all down and start from from word go again. And um, what happened was, we turned, we turned. Uh, I, I, I'm not even sure whose idea it was, you know, whether it was the girls, whether it was Arthur's. But somehow we came to the conclusion that the whole number should be done to Gypsy, who's sitting on the stage. So if you notice, if you ever see a tape of our Gypsy, um, we are on an angle towards Gypsy. And that made all the difference in the world because all of a sudden it wasn't, oh, the, the, the funny old broads are all going to do the big showstopper now. Instead, it was like, Gypsy, I'm going to teach you what I do now. I'm going to teach you what I do. And it just made all the difference in the world for me because I wasn't doing shtick. Mm. I was in a scene. I had an urgency. I had a need. And I, my need was to teach my protege how to survive in this terrible business. You know, I have to say, you're speaking with such intensity about this part. And it's mm-hmm. fascinating to me because we've said multiple times in this interview, you, you don't like playing roles. You want to create roles. You don't mm-hmm. want to play roles. Done. Now, you're talking with incredible intensity, both about the original person, Tessie Tura, the fact yeah. that, that there was an actual person, and about what you needed to find your way into that role, right. which makes me wonder, are there other roles? You know, as I look at this this roster of what you've done, it is almost entirely new work. You have, right. you Except have been able the George to pursue. Yeah. You've done, yes, you yeah. did Lips Together was not brand new. You did Lend Me a Tenor down there. That wasn't brand new. But are there, even if you don't have a what you consider the classic musical comedy voice, uh-huh. are there musical comedy oh, roles sure. that you'd like to tackle? Oh, please. I would kill to do Desiree. Kill. I mean, let's talk about non-traditional musical theater voices. Look at Glynis Johns. I'd kill to do that part. I really regard her as the sort of, you know, theatrical grown-up equivalent of uh, Josephine in, in Romance, Romance, the sort of grown-up courtesan. Absolutely. I'd love to do the great Jerry Herman musicals. I'd love to do Mame. I'd love to do Hello, Dolly. I, a dream role for me has always been Peter Pan. 
I was an acrobat when I was a kid. I would love to do Peter Pan before I get too old to do it. I'd like to do it as a nasty little cockney kid with <laughs> freckles and, and ugly red hair. I really would. I, and again, Peter Pan, I think that the dark side of Peter Pan should be explored. I mean, Peter Pan is not, you know, all, all kisses and light. I and mean, Peter Pan is a very, very mischievous soul. And, and I would really and like to explore that. And, and defying absolutely. the life force that says you That's absolutely right. And I would love to get my hands on that. And again, I think that's a wonderful, wonderful script. Um, I very, very much regret not having done Cabaret when I was at an appropriate age. I did get cast in the French version. Um, I think I was replacing Udo Lamper or something like that. But uh, we could not come to terms finally with the contract, so I didn't get to do it. Huh. But well, I was, when you say the French version, you mean in, in France? France? Yeah. Really? Yeah, I auditioned in French, and uh, I think that they were they – were, um, the book was going to be done in French, but we were going to sing in English. And, you know, I, I would definitely love to have done I, – I, I very, very much regret never having done Sally Bowles because I mm. think that that dark – Darkness um, is something I'm very attracted to. Like my favorite musical, and again, I, I don't think I'm age appropriate for it anymore. Is uh, <sighs> Michael John Lacuse's The Wild Party? I mean, he's just—he's ridiculously talented. He's—he's he's beyond beyond. I mean, the, for me, The Wild Party is just uh, one of the most brilliant pieces of theater I've ever, ever run into. You know, we've been talking almost exclusively about musicals and mm -hmm. at George Street you've had the opportunity to, and not it's not the only place you've done them but that's a place where David Saint has has given you the chances to yes. do to do plays both yeah. both new and um and Love existing him. ones yeah. um what's it like for you since everything i've been hearing from the start of this interview is coming out of music and singing um, to do roles where you don't sing a note. I love it. But let's talk about the shows that I've done out there. First of all, Lips Together, Teeth Apart, Chloe is a musical comedy wannabe uh, star, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, she, she does sing a little bit of Gypsy. She does have her tap dancing shoes on. I mean, she's very much a musical comedy diva in her own head. And um, Lend Me a Tenor, of course, is the great Ken Ludwig's finest farce and uh you know a farce of course is as musical as it gets i mean it's it's all about rhythm and um they very much like the divine sister they very much take the same kind of energy and drive that a musical takes even though you're not singing you really are singing i mean you're 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 there's a musicality to the language but i should talk about a wonderful play i did out there last season which was a very very delicate delicate piece called Come Back, Come Back Wherever You Are. And I was just honored to have um, originated the role of Sarah in Arthur Lawrence's uh, wonderful um, drama, Come Back, Come Back Wherever You Are, opposite the great Shirley Knight. And we've become terrific friends. Um, and I learned so much about acting from her. Oh, my God, that woman is smart. Um, but Arthur directed it, and it was a very, very personal uh, play for him. I believe I replaced Bernadette Peters uh, late in the game. Um, it was a show about a widow, and um, I am a widow. Uh, Bernadette is a widow. Um, uh, Arthur is very much a widower, so and Shirley's a widow. So it was um, a play that really dealt with coming to terms with grief. And for me to do it out at the George Street, which again, David Saint is largely responsible for me coming to terms with my own grief after losing my husband, was just so fitting. It was a very, very deep experience and a wonderful play. And I don't think I've ever been involved with a play that the audience talked so personally about it afterwards, because there were a lot of talkbacks afterwards, mm -hmm. like they'd have like uh, panels to discuss what the play was about. And people would get up and weep and, and talk about people that they had lost and how this was the first time they could really express their grief. And, you know, Arthur is a famously cantankerous guy, yet on this occasion and in all of those talkbacks, he was 
so open about his emotions. And, he, you know, of course, he had that great, great, long, wonderful relationship with Tom, his, the great love of his life. And, you know, this is a very smart man in his, you know, early 90s. And it was a great privilege to be part of his journey um, through grief. Yeah. I want to ask you about one other play, which was touched on very quickly in the discussion, which is Terrence McNally's dedication, which you did at primary. Yeah. I was, again, I was a replacement for that. I don't know why I'm a replacement for so many things. I think they figure, oh, she's not working. Um, yeah, I replaced someone. I think it was. Patricia Kallenberg, a wonderful actress, I replaced at the last minute. Um, mm. And it was the same director that had done Lips Together, Teeth Apart out at the George Street. And Terrence McNally had been so pleased with the Lips Together, Teeth Apart out there that when it was clear that Patricia was not going to continue with the show, um, they thought of me for it. And mm. so I, I came in, I think, week two weeks late or something like that. And that's that's always troublesome. Well, there were definitely changes because my recollection is that Nathan Lane was also not going to do he it He wasn't. It, first, oddly enough, I think it was going to be Peter Frechette. But then Peter Frechette didn't do it because he was going into the odd couple and he was replaced by Nathan Lane, who, of course, was the star of the odd couple. I mean, it was all very odd. And what's really weird is that Boyd Gaines did Nathan's part initially up at Williamstown, and of course Boyd Gaines was in My Gypsy. So the world, you know, the worlds were colliding. Oh, we have to talk about Up Against It, Todd Rundgren's show. Oh well, my God, worlds colliding. Let, okay, well, we'll talk. We'll, we'll do that in the remaining minutes. But I want to ask you. Know, you spoke earlier about you spoke of your voice as being idiosyncratic. Uh-huh. I would say you are a very distinctive performer, and certainly, if I heard a recording, if I just heard your voice, I would know instantly. To do dedication where you are on stage with two other very distinctive performers, Marion Seldes yes. and Nathan Lane, that uh, must have been quite an experience. Well, of course it was. I mean, you got these two titans. And it w- also the part that I was playing, I did not feel it was a good fit for me. Hmm. I mean, it's a lovely part. It's just not – again, if I had read it beforehand, I would have said, oh, this, is a, this doesn't – read like me. But, you know, if you're offered an off-Broadway play with Marion Seldes and Nathan Lane with a playwright who has just said that he liked you and a director who, you know, uh, gave you a really big success out at the George Street, I just, I said, of course I'll do it. Of course I'll do it. And looking back, I really... Uh, you know, of course, it was a, a great experience to work with. Uh, you know, God, Marion Shore was so great, and and just to be on a stage with with Marion and Nathan was fantastic. But I, it was not a, a trouble free process. It really wasn't. Mm. There was a lot of unhappiness, and and uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I once Don Amendola came in, it's the the energies sort of shifted. Mm-hmm. It became less. You know, star-oriented, obviously. It, I mean, John's a great, great actor. And Nathan's a great actor. I mean, I, I think he's an amazing performer. Oh, my God. I went to see him in November. And I was just like, I can't believe I was on stage with that guy. I, I kind of think he freaked me out a little bit. Hmm. I do. I, I, You know what? I don't cow easily. I think he cowed me. I, I think he did. And I wish I had the opportunity to work with him again because I don't think I'd be cowed now. I, I think it's like I, – I think I'd – have more self-confidence. I think back then I didn't have it. So you may get another chance to step into the ring with Nathan Lane. We'll see. You mentioned it, and we're going to let it be the last thing we talk about. But you mentioned Up Against It, which you didn't talk about earlier. Now that's not a show that most people know. No, but again, it's a show that was written by a guy whose musical theater chops, you know, were rooted in rock and roll. Todd Rundgren. I mean, come on. He's just awesome. But the script. Was a Joe Orton script for the Beatles that was rejected. Yep. But it's really, really funny. And, you know, the two shows that I have been, I'm sure that there are a million more, but two shows that come to mind that I really regret not going on to a New York production, you know, in a, obviously um, up against it had the initial uh, public theater production, but it was not successful. It was Joe Papp's last musical. But uh, I really do believe up against it is a great show with an incredible score that was way ahead of its time. 
and also Lizzie Borden. You know, mm-hmm. Chris McGovern's Lizzie Borden is just, you know, it was just a perfect part for me. And and he tailored that music to me, and I just love it. There's a cast album that, you know, you can't even put your hands on it for 200 bucks now. It's just, it's one of those musical theater gems. And again, I'm getting out of that age range where I can ever play it again. And I'm like, oh, God, it's like gigantic regrets, these wonderful shows that I'm probably not going to be able to uh, do. Well, we have to draw this to a close. You know, I've been looking me... at this clock and it keeps saying 26. I'm going, oh, no, we have twenty, you know, 34 <laughs> more minutes. And, of course, it hasn't moved. We do have to close. Okay. But I will say that, House and Fraser, I'm sure there are many more unique roles for you to create. I and hope thank so. you for being with us today this on Downstage This is so much fun, Saturday. Howard. Thank you for having me. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Tim Whitney. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded at the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theater Wing and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.